Thank you so much, Brother James. Boy, what a blessing. You've blessed us both this morning and tonight with great songs. Appreciate that. And again, thank you, choir, for the wonderful singing. Thank you, congregation, for your attentiveness and worship. It's an active part. It is a very active part. been learning on Wednesday nights how to worship through the Psalms, and so I encourage you to be here on Wednesday nights. It's a great blessing. Seven o'clock, we've been going through some Psalms. They've been a blessing to us. I pray they are to you. But tonight, we're in the book of Revelation. We're on the second part of our sermon, a preview from Patmos. Revelation chapter 1. We've got many sermons in, and we're still in chapter 1. You'd think I was part of Wade's Sunday school class. Sorry, I was paid to say that. <laughs> uh, might as well have fun. Have fun in the Word. Just enjoy it. Take your time and ingest it. Chapter 1, verse 12. I'd like to read through verse number 20. You found your place and you're able. We invite you to stand with your copy of the Scriptures open. We'll honor and reverence the reading of God's holy and Aaron and fallible inspired Word together. Revelation 1, 12 says, And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his foot, or down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head, his hairs were white like wool, and white as snow. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass. And if they burned in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters, and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in the right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks, which thou sawest, are the seven churches. Father, thank you again for the privilege and the high honor to stand behind the sacred desk, proclaim the truths of your word one more time. I pray that you'd help me to decrease and you increase. May the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight for you're our strength and you are our redeemer. God, I need you. We pray you'd fill us with your anointing, your unction, your zeal, your passion to preach the word of God in a way that you're glorified and we're all changed. We ask it in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. A preview from Patmos. Again, we got a bit of that in uh, last week. And then tonight we look at this preview. And the Apostle John had been banished by the Roman government to a remote rocky little island in the Mediterranean Sea. is just off the mainland of Asia for his convictions and his commitment to the Word of God and his testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as I said last week, let me remind you one more time. It'll cost you if you live for Jesus. In any culture, in any society, in any dispensation, it'll cost you if you live for Jesus. But I've lived long enough to tell you it's worth it. Are you sure? Paul said this light affliction will give way 
to an exceeding and eternal weight of glory. What are you saying? I'm telling you, just one glimpse of Jesus. No matter what you went through for his name's sake, our song will be, is worth it after all. He was there for his convictions, his commitment to the word of God, and a testimony for the Lord Jesus. If you'll recall, he said that he was in the Isle of Patmos, but at the same time, he was also in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, which proves to us that the Christian really does possess two different locations. Like John, you and I as believers can experience a very, very dark season in our life, maybe being banished from friends and family and Christian fellowship, but at the same time, we can also experience the undiluted presence of the living God. We can get a glimpse of heaven and have glory fill our soul. That was John's testimony on the Isle of Patmos. God had gave him a preview of heaven by the work of the Holy Spirit of the living God. And like him, we too may be stuck down here. Paul said in Ephesians, but we're also seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. That's why I'm not committed to a padded room. That's why I don't have to take tons of medication to get up in the morning and to pursue the day and lay my head down at night. Why? Because I may be down here that would drive a person nuts. Y'all just looking at me. You live in the same world I live in. They've, walked, they've gone stark raving mad. but I'm seated in the heavenlies. I'm here, but I'm there. That's what Paul or John was saying. He's in Patmos, but he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And now as we examine this detailed vision of Christ, we're given a premonition of the things which are and of the things which shall be hereafter. This is pretty exciting because this is prophecy I'm not going to mess up because he tells me what it is right here. Does anybody like to take a test with cheat notes? God's good. I'm glad we got it right here. And so here we've been looking at the things that are, but now we're going to get to see the things that shall be hereafter. But he gives us a vision, first of all, of candles before we look at the vision of Christ. And in verse 12 again, the Bible says, And I turned, John said, And I see the voice that spake with me, and being turned I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks... One, like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down the foot, and a girt about the paps with a, girdle, a golden girdle. Now, if you'll jump down to verse 20, we have the cheat notes. Praise God. The mystery. Because if he didn't give us this, I can't imagine the books that would be written. I can't imagine the weird commentaries that would be out there. Thank God he has discerned for us, he has revealed to us the mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in the right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. He said the seven stars are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches and the seven golden candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. And you don't have to even be smart to know who that one in the middle was like the son of man. Y'all good tonight? I'm excited about this vision. The Bible says this vision concerning the candlesticks teach us, speaks expressively of our purpose 
as the church of the living God. Remember earlier, he said, I'm going to send this out to the churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor. Write it down, send it to them. Those in representation was the entire church age. We talked about that in the first sermon. And with that being said, this shows us the purpose of the church of the living God. And what is that? You're talking about candles. You're talking about stars. You're talking about one in the center who outshines the star. So I think it's easy for us to come up with the purpose of the church and say, we're to shine. We're to shine. Isn't that true? Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said in Matthew 5, verse 14 and following, he says, you are the light of the world, a city that's set on a hill that cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick that giveth it light unto all that are in the house. So let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Well, it doesn't get any better than when it comes from the lips of Jesus. As he's telling the disciples there on the Mount of Beatitudes there, he told them, shine, shine. So the church must shine as a beacon of hope for a lost and a dying world. We must be a lighthouse for those who are life's troubled sea. Life is tough. Life is hopeless without God. And we are the church are to be that beacon of light for those who are perishing We've got to reflect the glory of God and light the way for a dark and a disparaging world. And this world's not getting any brighter. This world's getting darker by the moment. We must shine, shine, shine until Jesus calls or till he comes. One complimentary note, as you read through verse number 12 and 13, you will find that John gives us, and this is for our Wednesday night crowd, John gives us the true order of worship. As I read, he said, I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw the seven golden candlesticks, and in the midst of those seven, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a, gar uh, with a garment down to his foot, and girded about the paps with a golden girdle. And then I like what the Bible says. A little bit later in this text, and I'm going to bring it out, here's the order of worship. Here's what is the order. He worshiped, he turned, he saw, he heard, and he fell. He fell before the living God. Here's what I've learned, and what I am learning through the ministry of the Hebrew hymns, is that when we worship correctly, God's way, God's way, there's a bunch out there that's crazy, even in church life. It's not body surfing. With smoke and crazy lights, you guys are doing a good job. Don't get crazy on me. Jumping up and down, screaming like a bunch of tribal nuts. Y'all going to let me preach? Listen, when we worship correctly, what is that? Turn. You know what that is. Confession and repentance. Saw. Focus your eyes upon the Lord Jesus. Heard. Listen. For his voice, fall before him in reverence. Hear me when I tell you, when our worship is correct, we'll shine. We'll shine for Jesus. The church that's not shining is the church that's not focused and worshiping on the resurrected Lord. It speaks of not only the purpose of the church, but it speaks also of the preeminence of Christ. Notice his place in the church. I don't have to remind you this, but it's just an awesome statement. The Bible describes in this vision of the candlesticks that he 
one like unto the Son of Man was in the center. And that's where he is. He's in the midst of the church. He must be in the center. Ephesians 5.23 says that Christ is the head of the church. I still believe that. I still believe. Who's in charge of this bunch? Him. Boy, you'll be in the ditch of life if you don't. It is he who is the head of the church. Like any valuable work of art or any elaborate piece of home decor, you walk into somebody's home, that is the centerpiece. That woman of the home will tell you that is the masterpiece of the home. And my desire and my exhortation to all of us is may we never be guilty of making anyone or anything the center, the center of attention other than the lofty Lord Jesus. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about our choir or any of our staff members. It's all about King Jesus. And when it becomes about one of us, that's idolatry, friends. It's all about him. It's all about him. He is the centerpiece and he is the masterpiece of the church. May this house of worship, may it always magnify and exalt the living Christ. You've heard me like a broken record now going on 15 years of telling you this same truth. We are here to make much of Christ. The Bible teaches if preeminence is placed in the church, but also his power in the church. He alone is the light. Did you see that in the text? He alone is the light. You know that from John's other writing. John said he's the true light. Man, I'm glad. I'm glad he said that in the gospel that bears his name. He said also that he's the one that lights every man that comes unto him. That's why we can stand and sing like we did earlier. I saw the light. You're not in darkness anymore. You've been called out of the darkness into the marvelous light. Why? Because he lit the way. He illumined your mind. He is the light of the world. That's who he is. He's got power to turn on the lights. Aren't you glad for that? Make a Methodist shout. What's wrong with y'all? I'm telling you, you are in darkness and depravity of sin. You are headlong for hell. God turned on the light. You remember the day? That's some power, isn't it? That's some mighty, mighty power. He is the light of the world. Let me tell you, when it comes down to it, he is the source of salvation. That's what I'm speaking about tonight. And we are but sticks. We are but sticks. I'm just glad I got lit. I say that in a church context, right? Y'all are looking at me like I'm crazy. Let me quote it again. He's the light that lights every man that comes unto him. We are but sticks. We are but instruments to hold high the light that lights in the darkness. John saw seven churches fashioned and fixed in a circle with Christ in the center symbolizing the power and the purpose of the local church of the living God. It all revolves around him. So God help us as true believers never to forget our purpose and the preeminence of Christ in this church. When Christ stops being the center of this church, shut the doors and go home. Write Ichabod on the doors. Walk away. Because it's no longer a church. We need to understand our purpose is to lift high and magnify the light of the world.
who has lit us and every man that comes unto him. Look at the vision of Christ now. Verse 13 says, In the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down the foot, girt with about the paps with a golden girdle, his head and his hairs were white like wool and white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet were like unto brass, as if they had burned in a furnace, and his, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had his right hand, seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun that shineth in its strength. When I saw him, there it is, that last part of worship, I fell at his feet, dead. And he laid his right hand upon me and said unto me, Fear, fear not. For I am the first and the last. Can I tell you something else about worship? I'm going to get into Christ here. And I'm not being mean. I'm not being mean to our Pentecostal friends. I'm not. But true worship will not drive you around in a Congo line and swinging off the chandeliers. True worship will drive you to your knees. Both over the living and an exalted Christ. Don't you think John knew what he's talking about? There before the Lord, he fell before him. God help us to follow that model. As we look at this vision of Christ, we see his humanity. It says in the text, one like unto the Son of Man. This really ought to excite you because Jesus, in this vision, was recognizable to John. That's, in, that's really inspired me. And it's made me very inquisitive. Maybe you're like I am as a Bible student. I read the Gospels and I get, I get envious. You know that song that said, I wish I could have been there? I'm like that everywhere I read. Wouldn't you like to have been there? I mean, wouldn't you like to have seen him walk on water when you're scared to death thinking you're going to die? Keep your shirt on, boys. I told you we're going to make it to the other side. Whoo! Wouldn't you like to have been there? I mean, you're starved to death, hadn't eaten forever, and that wouldn't take long for a few Baptists. A little lad's got a lunch, and he feeds a multitude with scraps left over. Wouldn't you like to have been there? When he raised the dead, when he healed all manner of sickness and disease, when he calms the storms. Oh, I'd have loved to have been there. I'm envious of Peter and James and John especially. But I want you to know, I've envisioned in my mind what Jesus may have looked like. Have you? I tell you, I think Home Interior's done us a bad, bad service. That effeminate-looking Jesus would fit in with boys of our culture. And that's scary. I'm having too much fun tonight. That's not the Jesus that I read in the book. So I struggle. I was in Israel just looking at every Jewish man thinking, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder, I wonder. John saw him. John said, the word of life, that's what he called him. He said he handled him. He touched him. He's the very disciple that was known to lay his head upon the shoulder, the breast of our Lord. He knew him in a very personal way. And now in the revelation, listen to this. In the revelation, John recognized Jesus. That's pretty awesome. John recognized him. It was the same Jesus that John knew and loved as he forsook all in order to follow him. So there was Jesus, not in an incomprehensible, mystical form of a supernatural world. No, it was Jesus of Nazareth, the man that he left all in order to follow him. Recognized him even in his glorified state. That really helps me when the Bible says when we get to heaven, we'll be known as we're known. 
That's exciting. But at the same time, it was a side of Jesus that John had never fully known. I will say he had a little bit of a head start than me and you. You remember on the Mount of Transfiguration? He did with Peter and John and James did get to see Jesus in that moment unveil a glimpse of his glory on the mountain of transfiguration. And you know the end result. Everybody said, we, we shouldn't leave here. I, Peter got that one right. Let's, I know he got rebuked. Don't get me wrong. But I'm saying I understand him. Let's pitch a tent. I mean, do you want to go anywhere when God has manifested in front of you his glory? But that was only a glimpse in compared to what John saw in the revelation. What he saw was a fuller manifestation of the glorified Christ. And he gives us a description. He begins with his clothing, his garment. He said it was foot length with a golden girdle or a golden sash around his chest. Now, if you're a Bible student, you'll immediately recognize that is the priestly garments. Isn't that something? Because earlier, John only knew Jesus in, how do you say it, uh, rags? Is that accurate? Now, be, be in the Bible with me. Help me. Is that accurate? Humble, peasant rags? Wasn't it Jesus that said, wasn't it Jesus said, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head? I don't think the economy was booming. In Nazareth, no different when Jesus started his ministry than the day that Jesus was born. And they could not, his parents, his peasant parents, could not even afford the required sacrifice. So they brought in turtle doves. That bunch on the hair channel preaching about a rich Jesus, I'm telling you. In his earthly ministry, he emptied himself. He emptied himself and came and lived poor. And lowly among men. John knew him, I would say, in just humble peasant rags. Now he saw him in priestly garments. Not just priestly garments. But they were the garments of the high priest. I think that's right. Because the Bible says that he has transcended into glory as our great eternal high priest. That's who he is. That's who he is. And a golden girdle, a golden sash, it speaks of his purity in judgment. See, he is both, and you know this, Jesus is both priest and judge. He is both intercessor for the children of God, and he is judge of both the living and the dead. And then he talks about his hair here. His head and his hair white like wool and white like snow. A lot of people had said in commentaries that refers to wisdom, well, I'll give you that, none wiser, you know. I hope I could claim that with all this is coming in. I don't think I can, but it really does not. It, 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 refers more, it refers more to his eternal nature. John saw Jesus in his earthly ministry cut off in his prime. He saw him crucified and nailed by an old Roman cross, spit upon, beaten, and laid in a borrowed tomb, buried at 33 years of age. But now, in this vision, the Lord takes John back to the prophecy of Daniel and reveals to him that Jesus is the same as Daniel's Ancient of Days. And by the way, if Jesus is not Daniel's Ancient of Days, heaven is filled with idolatry. And you're guilty of idolatry. Why? Because we worship him. 
We worship him. And all heaven worships the Lord Jesus, who is Daniel's ancient of days. From everlasting to everlasting. It reminds us that you can't put him on a timeline because he is the timeline. It speaks of his eyes as a flame of fire. What does that mean? Well, he's reminding us that in the revelation that nothing will be hidden from the eyes of the Lord. You know as well as I do, those eyes of the Lord penetrate even down into the depths of our souls. John did not know him this way in his earthly ministry. Maybe, maybe in his earthly ministry he got a hint of that when he was dealing with the Pharisees. You, you remember? Everybody, everybody respected, revered, and looked up to the Pharisees. They were the leaders and the guardians of the law. They were the keepers of that which is holy. They run the synagogue. When they come, they had their loud prayers, and they took the chief seats, and everybody looked to them, but Jesus took a look with those all-penetrating eyes. You, you remember some of the commentary from Jesus? You, you remember? He said, you're whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. You look real, real good on the outside, but inside there's nothing but dead, 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 dead bones. He called them a generation of vipers. He called them wolves in sheep's clothing. He called them snakes in the grass. And it blew the people away. But they had walked with Jesus long enough to understand God calls it right every time. When Jesus said it, John may had a hint that, boy, I tell you, God sees more than just the exterior. How many of us have lived long enough that God's eyes does penetrate even down to the very depths of our soul? That which we hide from our spouses, that which we hide from our children, that which we hide from our church. Y'all going to let me preach tonight? His eyes go even there. It's a flame of fire. Nothing will be hidden. Nothing, nothing will be hidden to the all-knowing, all-seeing eyes of God. Then he talks about his feet, fine like molten brass. What that is is a symbol of judgment. You know that a lot through other books of prophecy. The brazen altar in the Old Testament before the tabernacle, it burned with the fire of God's judgment continually. Is a reminder. A reminder of God is a consuming fire. And brass, why? Because, well, brass can withstand fire. The brass on his feet because there's coming a day that God's going to put his foot down. You, you know what I'm talking about? God's going to put his foot down. I mean, you think you're sick of this world. You think the stench of this world has not risen up to the nostrils of God. You don't think there's a payday coming someday. You don't think God is true when he said that retribution and judgment are coming. Do you not read Revelation 19 when one day he will mount up on a fiery white stallion with a sword and a rod in his hand? He is coming to put his foot down. Some say, what will he be? Whose side will he take? He's not coming to take sides. He's coming to take over. That's what the Bible teaches us. He's coming in judgment. And everything that is wicked and unholy shall be stamped out by the feet of Almighty God. Then his voice, sound of many waters. I'm, I like his voice. I like his voice. I, I like it when it's a still, small voice. I, I remember Rusty said one time, I thought it was a good statement. He said, uh, I'd much rather be corrected by God's still, small voice 
than a stern shout. Maybe in a hospital bed or in a car accident in some type of trauma. You believe that? I absolutely do. I quoted this morning, C.S. Lewis said God speaks in a still small voice, but sometimes he uses a megaphone called pain. There's not a person sitting here that's a believer that has not had their spirit checked who has not been quickened by the voice of God. Boy, he can speak. He can speak. Think about that voice. It's a powerful shout. Let's talk about the positive things for a moment. I like his shouts. I like his loud voice because I've read the Bible. I've lived long enough. I've walked with him enough to know that his shouts turns funerals into festivals. Hmm. Y'all want to go to the tomb of Lazarus with me? Wasn't that a sweet thing? I mean, Jesus shows up and he gets criticized. Y'all don't remember the story? His own friends. Some of his best friends. Those at the hub of his ministry. They're in Bethany. Mary and Martha said, what's wrong with you? Oh, don't look at me like that. I promise you they weren't pleasant. Read the text. They were upset. If you would have been here, our brother would not have died. I can see him probably saying, it's okay, just, just hang on. Because later he tells us he did this, that many would believe and that God would be glorified. So he walks over and comes to the tomb and roll, roll that stone away. Lord, 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 this is, a this is a dry, arid place. He's been dead four days. We got spices, but that's not proper embalming. I'm not trying to be mean, but you die. You're going to stink. Brother Don back there, I tell you, just go ahead and pay the extra to get embalmed. You'll do your family service. Or get buried quick. I'm not being mean. I'm being honest. Four days in that climate, roll the stone back. Lord, they said, behold, he, he stinketh. I bet they didn't have to roll the stone back to get that. Roll the stone back. Remember what he shouted? Lazarus, come forth. Somebody said, why did he use the name Lazarus? Because if he didn't, everybody had died to come out of there. You don't believe me? I'm telling you, some soon coming day, King Jesus is going to step out on a cloud. And one more time, that mighty voice will roar from heaven. And that shout will wake the dead and millions shall rise to be with the Lord in the air. So I do like his voice. I love it when it speaks softly. I love it. One of these days I'm going to hear it like a blast of a trumpet. But I'll tell you, his voice in that day will be one of judgment. The hour is coming, and now is. It's when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they shall live. That's the glorious thing. It's a power to wake the dead, a power to raise the dead. But that voice also has a power to silence the opposition, the foe. We do know. His voice can be deafening and overpowering. John saw the day when his voice, he said, was like many waters. He'll speak in a deafening roar and all voices that are raised in angry opposition and protest against the living God will be silent. You don't believe that day will happen? Oh, my goodness. They hit our streets over everything in angry protest. And when Jesus comes back, you don't think they're going to argue? Oh, yes, they're going to argue. They'll have their signs and their slogans and their hats and who knows what else. And they're going to scream filthy abominations. 
And others will recognize it's him. And they're going to say, but Lord, Lord, in that day didn't we do this and that and this and that? And Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 and following. So I'm still in the book. But when he roars from Zion, it's overpowering. It's deafening. The Bible says that every mouth shall be stopped. I like what one commentator said. You ever tried to argue with the Niagara Falls? Deafening. Someone said concerning that, just stand at the foot of the falls with some 12 million cubic feet of water roaring down each minute and try to argue with those thunderous voices of many waters. So shall it be against those who rebel against the living God in the day of judgment. Then he speaks of his right hand, which talks of possession and position of these stars. Thank God for verse 20, because we understand that. It speaks of his control, the stars in his hands. Those seven stars without sauce in the right hand of verse 20 of the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angels. That word can be translated into the messengers of the seven churches. And so I'm just telling you, we're in his hand. God controls the ministry, and God controls the ministry. We're in his hand. He controls those. It is by his right hand that he guides and he governs. And by the way, if you're a child of God, it's for you too. Your eternal destiny is in his hand. We've learned in the Psalms on Wednesday night that our life is in his hands. His hands speaks of control. So what does that mean? I don't own my life. I don't own my will. I don't do I don't tell I'm told I don't go I, I'm sent we're in his hand he's in control it speaks of a covenant he said I'll never leave you I'll never forsake you and so when before the throne of the living God our Savior the captain of the Lord of hosts, he will declare to the Father, I love it, all present and accounted for, I've never lost a one. Thou that you have given me are mine, and here are they with me. John 17, 24, in that great priestly prayer. So it speaks of control. There's no place I'd rather be. Ladies and gentlemen, if my ticket to heaven depended on me, I'd never get there. There's no place I'd rather be than in the palm of his hand. Because in the palm of his hand, he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. No man will ever pluck you out. And there's coming a golden day that he'll usher us in. And that prayer will be answered of John 17. They're here. Everyone that you've given me. So God's able to save us. God's able to keep us. God's able to retrieve us. God's able to take us before the very throne of God. Why? Because of his strong, strong right hand. We are his possession. The position is in his hand. And finally tonight. I want to look at his mouth. His mouth like a two-edged sword. A two-edged sword. It's a reference, you know, to the Word of God found in Hebrews 4.12. Men today and women today, I would suggest to you, are dangerously trifling with the Word of God. In translations, you, you do understand there's some wonderful translations. You also are smart enough to understand there's some very dangerous translations you, you do understand that men and women are trying to make the word of God say what they want it to say 
I would say again, people are very dangerously trifling with the Word of God, but they don't realize that they're fondling with a very sharp two-edged sword. And one day they'll be cut asunder and cast into the lake of fire forever and tormented. It's a two-edged sword. Why? Because it cuts two ways. It cuts one way for salvation and it cuts the other way for damnation. I told you finally, just erase that because I'm not finished. Look at verse number nine, or the number nine, his countenance. His countenance, his glory outshines the sun. As the sun shining in his strength. The only person I understand had a word concerning this was Saul of Tarsus. Do you remember in the noonday? Have you ever, I like the Gulf. I like the Gulf side of Florida. I like that white sand. It'll blind you though. You ever tried it? Lunchtime to go out there when the sun's right over your head and you look at that sun, that sand, you'll be like this. There in the backside of the desert, Saul of Tarsus said, I saw him. On my way to Damascus, he stopped me dead in my tracks. He said, I want you to understand, I know who stopped me. He, the glorified Christ, he whose glory outshined the noonday sun. That goes along with what John said, the sun in his strength outshines the sun. See, Jesus was approachable to little children in the Gospels, to lepers and even thieves like Zacharias, but not in heaven. In heaven, no flesh will ever be justified. Why? It is because of the brightness of His intense glory. You cannot look upon the sun shining in its strength, much less approach the sun. Do you realize that one pound of heat from the sun can raise 20 million ton of rock by 2,500 degrees centigrade. That's enough to turn rock into incandescent lava. So what are you trying to say? You can't approach power of this magnitude and live. The same John, the same John that laid his head on the shoulder of our Lord was now on the earth. He saw him when he was in ministry on the earth. But now as he saw him as the glorified Lord in that glorified state, he didn't lay his head on his breast. The Bible said he fell at his feet. Why? Because you cannot take that intense glory. But there's a word of consolation. It's part of the vision here. Let me read it to you, 17 and 18. He said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet dead, and he laid his right hand upon me and said unto me, Fear not, for I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth, was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. And so there's a vision of consolation. If you left, Je- if you left John before the feet of Jesus is dead, there's, there's no peace, there's no hope, there's no consolation. But there is a vision that gives us peace. The consolation is in the gift of God, and I would speak of that as the touch of God. The Bible says he fell dead at, before the feet of Jesus, but yet Jesus laid his right hand upon him, John said, and the hand of strength and power restores and resurrects to new life. Isn't that our testimony? I mean, isn't that our testimony? We who are dead in our sins and trespasses against God I said it this morning in the sermon, but he touched me. The touch of God brings resurrected life. The truth. Thank God Jesus in that state didn't only touch him, but he also talked to him. I have learned a long time ago that the voice of God is what abolishes all of my fears. And I will tell you tonight, the Christians, those who are in Christ Jesus, those who are in his righteous right hand, have nothing to fear in his awesome presence. Now the lost, the lost and undone without Christ should fear because they have everything to fear. But we have the touch of God for eternal life and the truth to abolish those fears that shelter us from the wrath to come. 
And that, my friend, is a gift of God's amazing peace. Peace. There's a consolation in spite of the grave. I like what he said. He said, I'm first and last. I mean, he that liveth was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Glad he put that there. Then he said, amen. It's nice to hear Jesus say amen. You know, we can say amen sometimes and not mean it. That's the last period. Nothing to be added or take it away. Jesus said, amen. It's dead, alive, and then alive forevermore. I like that. And so there's consolation in spite of the grave because Jesus conquered death. He liveth. Was dead, behold him alive forevermore. So there is hope in spite of the grave for this aged apostle John by seeing that the grave is conquerable in Christ Jesus. And so for all of us who are in Christ, I'm going to live forever. I'm going to die no never. Jesus died on the tree for me, and I'm going to live forever. He's the first fruits. He conquered death, hell, and the grave, and in him, I'm never going to die. So the grave is conquerable. And if you ask me, that's some awesome peace. He also controls death. He's got the keys. I didn't make that up. That's what he said. And behold, I, I got the keys. Keys symbolize freedom or release, which means it's possible. It is absolutely possible in Christ Jesus to be set free. To be set free. To set at liberty from the sting and the victory of death. For a believer, what do we got to fear about death? You ever thought about that? What do we got to fear about death? It's nothing more than a doorway to Jesus. You close your eyes here, you wake up in eternity. Looking at the face of our darling Savior. He's got the keys to set at liberty over the sting and the victory of death. But it's only available in Christ Jesus. He is the only one who holds the keys. So I would say to that, hallelujah, what a Savior. So Christians need not fear death and Hades. The last enemy is death. The unseen abode of the unbelieving dead are currently in Hades, often called hell. And after the great white throne judgment, death and hell will be thrown into the lake of fire, which the Bible says this is the second death. So if you thought hell was it, no. Boy, I wouldn't want anybody to go to hell, but that's not it. If hell's not bad enough, you're going to be resurrected. Yeah. The Bible says hell's going to give up their dead, great and small. Books will be open. They'll be judged. Then they'll be bound and cast into the lake of fire that burneth forever and forever and forever. The Bible says this is the second death. Those who reject Jesus have everything in the world to fear. But there is peace for those in Christ Jesus. But abject fear for those who reject him. I want to close tonight the same way I closed this morning. The choice is up to you. How will you choose? My exhortation and my admonition to you. Choose Jesus. Choose Jesus. It's the greatest decision that any of Adam's race could ever make. Thank God I don't have to go to hell. Thank God I've been forgiven. Thank God I've been adopted. I'm in the royal family of God. I'm here, but I'm there. He's not left me. He'll never leave me or forsake me. And soon he's coming to get me. I've not been appointed to wrath, but to attain salvation in our God. Well, if you're not in on that, I'd, I'd get into the ark of God. I'd run to Jesus, give my life to him.
If not, you have everything in the world to fear and tremble. Some of you already mentioned, I, I'm a little concerned about this study of Revelation. Preacher, it's a little bit scary about all these things. Well, depends on which side you're on. Come to Jesus. We'll see him as the absolute victor through every page. Father, thank you for the privilege and the honor to share your word. I pray now, God, you'd use it in order to glorify yourself and draw people unto you. Would you save those who are lost and convict and challenge us who are saved? And we'll give you praise for what you accomplish in Jesus' name. Amen.